Late into the evening, on April 13, 1970, the world slowly began to hear these words. But these words came not from around this world, but came from very far away from this world. And those words were, Houston, we have a problem. Now, those words were memorialized in a movie on Apollo 13, which those words came from. The irony is that those words memorialized in that movie, but they were not actually, literally, the words that were said. They were modified a little bit, as people who make movies often do. What was actually said by astronaut Swigard was... Houston, we've had a problem here. Okay? Sounds like an astronaut. Like, you know, we've had a problem. No big deal. (laughs) All right? Well, they had a major problem because they were two days into a journey to the moon. And all of a sudden, they heard an explosion. And that explosion was the oxygen tank that gave them life. And that explosion, very quickly, they started to run out of oxygen. They had three astronauts in the main spaceship. The other oxygen tank that was also aboard that spaceship, also, um, they ran out of oxygen very quickly because of the explosion. So both oxygen tanks, they ran out of oxygen. And so mission control very quickly, and the astronauts were trying to figure out, what do we do? And what they did was they decided that they were going to go into the lunar landing ship, and that's where they were going to work on trying to survive. They obviously were not going to be able to land on the moon. They went in that lunar ship. That lunar ship had oxygen for two men for two days. They needed oxygen for three men for four days. And so they improvised. And thank God, as they went around the moon and came back to Earth, they were able to splash down on April 17th safely. Oxygen is something we all need to live. And for them, oxygen wasn't just something that that kept them alive. It's something that saved them, because if they had run out, they would have died. We, too, I don't know if you're that, we, too, as Christians... We know we need to have that oxygen to breathe. But there's something else that we need for life. There's something else that we need for eternal life. And Jesus actually addressed that with an expert of the law, someone who really knew the Old Testament very, very well. This happens in the Good Samaritan parable exchange. And what happens is this expert of the law comes up to the to Jesus and said, what must I do to have and to inherit eternal life? What must I have to inherit eternal life? And eternal life, just so you know, is not just life after we die. It is life even here, living in that eternal life. And so there's something else we need other than oxygen. And so Jesus told this extra of the law, the new, his Old Testament, his Bible at that time, that's all they had, so well to say, go back and find out what is it you need for that. The extra law, probably had pretty much the entire Old Testament memorized, went back and came back to Jesus and said, 
For eternal life, we need to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, that extra the law took a passage from Deuteronomy and took a passage from, I'm sure, all of your favorite books, which we are about to read in Bible recap, Leviticus, and brought those two together. It is the same great commandment that Jesus said when another Pharisee asked him and said, what is the greatest of all the commandments in the Old Testament? And Jesus said, it's these two, love God and love your neighbor. But church, we have a problem because we are running low on loving God and loving others. Last week, Jeff began to address that as we were looking at 1 John. And uh, what, um, what Jeff said, and let me quote him up here. I think we can bring up the quote. Last week, Jeff said, Christians are not acting like Christians. The church is not acting like the church. And I would ask the question, well, how are we not? And he answers that, when the church stops being light, it is no longer being the church. When Christians stop loving others, it's no longer being Christian. When I say church, I mean all of us are in this together. So those astronauts in that Apollo spaceship, they were all in it together. All right, They couldn't say, well, we're just going to have oxygen from one person. They were all in it together to solve the problem. We as little church are individually in it together. We as the church, little church, are in it together. We're in it together with the Christian church in America. We're in it together with the body of Christ through the whole world. Is that this is our life, is to love God and love others. Now, Mark Galley... Um, I don't know if you've ever heard his name, but he was for many, many years the chief editor in chief of Christianity Today. And he's been writing a blog now since he left where he really tries to look at the intersection between culture and the Christian faith. And this last week, he's been really struggling about what to write about. And this is what he said. Let me quote him. He said, I've endeavored to help us think more wisely about our world so that we might more faithfully love our neighbors, even our political and cultural enemies. But the last couple months, I've noticed that there is nothing new under the sun. In short, I've suggested the problems of how Christians might respond, and I'm not sure I have much more to say. I believe we live in a moment where new insights are not going to help as much as getting in the trenches and figuring out how to understand and love our neighbors. Besides, every newsletter, news outlet, magazine, and think tank I review spends all their time thinking horizontally. Very, very few are pondering the vertical. To put it in biblical language, there's an enormous amount of thinking about how to understand and best love the neighbor. Hardly anything about what it means and how to love God. I think that what you're seeing here is we have a categorization. We usually think of these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. And you see even Mark separates the two. And something we do often is we, we keep those somewhat separate and um, divided. And in fact, I'm going to just as an illustration, let's pretend, for example, this is 
loving God. And notice how he said is loving God because it's what? A vertical, right? And then he categorized and said that loving neighbors is horizontal. And we do. We tend to look at these two just like this. Um, sometimes it's really nice. We can put it into a cross. <laughs> All right? <laughs> okay? But really, overall, so many times we really, in our minds and hearts and our actions, treat them very separately. So, for example, one thing that I hear frequently is, uh, you know... I'm spending so much time with the demands of life, and I've got so many others I'm loving, and my families, and at work, and everything. I'm putting all my focus here. I just really don't have time for God. Or the other thing sometimes I hear is, you know, I pray, I study my Bible, I, do, I worship God and everything, but am I loving my neighbor? And so these things often are kept separate. Now, what is fascinating about the letter that we're going through in 1 John is that 1 John, I think, hits this on head on as to this dichotomy we have because what is the connection? Where, where, how are these connected? And not only how are these connected, but we're going to find out there's something missing in this equation that's really important about learning how we can love God and love our neighbors more. So I want you to turn to 1 John, and I'm going to be um, having it up here so you can turn in your Bibles if you want to. I'm actually using a version of the Bible called the CSB version. It's one of the newer versions, Christian Standard Bible, very, very good version. Um, but I'm using it because of the way in which they translate some important verses we're looking at today, it's slightly different than the ESV means the same thing, but I just think that it's a little clearer. So, we're going to start back in 1 John 3, 16, and I'm going to read all the way to 24. And last week, Jeff covered 16 through 18, but I want to go back, and I'll tell you why, back to 16 in just a second. So, this is what it says, starting at verse 16. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us love in word or speech. Let's not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. So, look at verse 19, because what's happening is we, in essence, are really starting at verse 19. But I'm going to take us back to 16, because if you notice, 16 starts out with, this is how we have come to know. Notice that verse 19 starts out similar but slightly different. It says, this is how we will know. 
So verse 19 is really speaking more in the present and the future, what are we going to do? And, and 16 speaks more of what has happened, and based on that, what are we supposed to do? But John is doing something, I think, so important for us to see when it comes to this loving God and loving others. Because, if you, I don't know if you ever thought about we, but we often talk about the Great Commandment. But the Great Commandment was something that was Jesus gave as a response to how do you summarize everything in the Old Testament? How do you summarize everything before Christ, before Jesus, before he died on the cross? What John's going to do is really take that and reshape that into what are we to do now that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins? How are we now supposed to live? And in fact, what John's going to say is really something that actually came from Jesus' mouth, slightly modified based on the Jesus is now resurrected and went through the cross, that Jesus said back in John 13. I want you to look at this. It says, verse 16, the very top, this is how we have come to know love. And here is the key part. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John here is changing what we mostly think of just loving God and loving our neighbor, and he's changing it into this statement. Why? Why is he doing that? Because I think what he's doing is giving us a more holistic shape as to what it looks like in our faith to love God and love our neighbor. Let me show you how he does that. I want you to think about all the different players in that statement. So I really want to focus on that one statement. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. All right. So I want you to think about this. Is that what are the different persons, I'm going to say, that play into that? I'll tell you what I mean here. All right. So... Who is it that laid down our life for us? Jesus. All right? So I'm going to go back to white. So let's take a look at this. And this is going to represent Jesus who laid down his life for us, or God, in essence. All right? Then, who is it that he laid down his life for? Who? Us. All right? So he laid down his life for us. This will represent Everybody that he laid down his life for. All right? But not only did he lay his life down for everyone, he also laid his life down for you. So we're not just to love everyone. Who is to love everyone as God loved us? We individually. So there's not just the Jesus and the collective, all the ones he laid down his life for, but it's our individual faith. That comes in hand. So I want you to take a look at this yellow. I chose yellow here because, heck, we are supposed to be the light of the world, right? <laughs> okay. So we'll, we'll make the light of the world yellow. So I want you to notice all three of these are persons. God is a person. We were created in his image. He's like the ultimate person. We have the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But God is ultimately a person. The ones he laid his life down for are Persons. The way the one he laid his life down for is us, which is an individual person. 
But I want you to notice that what John is doing is John is in, in this command that he's giving us or this description about our, our faith. He's actually telling us how this faith is shaped. He's showing us how it is connected. So they're not just three individual things like I talked about with love God and love your neighbor. They're actually connected. All right. So I want you to show you how that works. So here's Jesus who laid down his life for us, representing God. Who did he lay his life down for? Well, really, all of us, right? So I'm going to put a connection here because this connection, if I get that through there, this connection represents what? This gold part, this connection is he laid his life down for us. All right? Everyone following me so far? All right. Then he didn't just lay his life down for us. <laughs> he laid his life down individually for each one of you. All right, so I'm going to put that here. All right, so far so good. That's what we have there in he laid down his life. Based on that, what are we... Each of us supposed to do? Lay, very good. We are to lay down our lives for others. All right? You see what John's doing here? He's giving us a shape to our faith. God laid down his life for everyone, God laid his life down individually for us. Each one of us is to love God and love others. And what does that form? What is this? A triangle, okay? What do you know about a triangle? Anybody know what is so special about the triangle? It's very strong because, look, I can't do anything with it, all right? It does not come apart. It's a good way to think of our faith. That if our faith is shaped like this, like a triangle, and everything's working well, it stays stable. It stays strong. You can't break it. But not only that, look at what John says. When our shape looks like this, what does it say? This is how we have come to know love. That word know there is actually using the word knowing love as experiencing love. So when it's all this way, we experience the love of God, the love of others. Because these people love us individually. We love them. God loves them. God loves us. All right? And ultimately, what do we have through all this? A strong faith of loving others. And if all of us looked like this and had that strong faith, that's what we would be doing, is always focused on who are all the different persons here we're dealing with, and the connections, because the connections are the actions. Lay down his life for us. Lay down his life individually. All these connections form basically an interpersonal relationship. There's a relationship that God loves us personally. He loves everybody else personally. And we are to personally love others. All right. Love is something you have to engage with people. If I'm going to love Jeff and my love Patty... If I'm going to love Marcia, 
It's not like, oh, I love you. It's like I've got to know them. I've got to get to know them personally. I've got to know what it is that they need so I can lay down their life for them. Here is the shape of our faith. But this is what sometimes happens, is we decide that we want that shape to look different. So, for example, we might do this. Say, well, you know what? I'm going to add something else. I'm going to add another piece to this. There we go. All right? I'm going to add another piece. What ends up happening? (laughs) It's not strong anymore, is it? What do you think this piece is that we often add? I want you to go back and take a look. I'm going to go back to um, 1 John chapter 2 and look what it says. Now remember, we just defined what love looks like, the shape of our faith. This is what 1 John 2.15 says. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. For the one who does the will of God remains forever. This is what we so often do, is we replace loving others with loving the world. Now, that can happen through through usual suspects of sin, like lust it's talking about here, where we focus on our own needs and we're we're just looking at the world, or we're more focused on the possessions of the world. So we don't really have this connection anymore. And so even though this is connected, all right, the reality is it's not really like this. It's really like this connection doesn't even exist because those connections are about love, connections about personally laying down our lives. And so really what ends up happening is it just all falls apart, all right? When we try to put the world in that equation, and notice what happens too. When we try to put the world there in that equation like this, look at the interconnectedness of that triangle because before when it was like this, everything is connected. But look what it says happens. When we have the love of the world and we're not treating others well, or we're focusing selfishly on ourselves, etc., or we're making politics in our positions. I know that's none of us. But, you know, our, we take positions in the world and politics and all these other things, and we say, this is more important than my personal relationship. Social media is really like this, because you're not connected to the people personally. But when you do this, look what happens. It doesn't just affect your relationship with other people it actually breaks your relationship with God. It hurts your relationship with God. Notice what it says there. The love of the Father is not in him. It is not of the Father. So in in essence, when we try to add, I mean, just the whole thing just breaks apart. Okay? We really don't have the ability to be strong in our faith because we've added this other component in there. So this is one way in which John is showing us that that shape is so important to our faith and one of the ways in which it breaks. But there is another way. 
that it also breaks. And that's what John deals with in this passage here that I want to take and spend the rest of our time with. Is this way that he talks about is much more subtle, much more hidden. But I will tell you as a pastor, what we're going to talk about now, what John's going to talk about, I will say as a pastor, with the people I pastor, which is all of you and me, we all struggle with this, this thing we're going to look at, this thing we're going to look at is something that I by far more see in our lives that interfere with our ability to love God and others than even the world. I want you to focus here on verse um, 19. So 19 begins with this statement, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth. Now that statement both refers back up to the previous statement about loving God, and it also points us forward. And what it points us forward to is this statement. And I sort of broke it apart because really it begun 19b, begins a different sentence. So this is how we will know that we belong to the truth. And and now once you take just the we will reassure as really the full statement that John's now saying. So John says, we will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. What is the other way that this triangle gets broken? Well, we end up, let me put our little triangle back together again. This is how, again, that the shape of our face look to make it strong. What he's now dealing with here, let me do it that way, really, is because now he is dealing with not something externally, the world. He is now dealing with something that goes on inside of us, individually, the state of of our heart. And he's saying that what is going on inside of our heart actually can affect this entire thing here, this entire shape. It can actually break that shape. All right. It can disconnect us, our hearts, and the state of our hearts can actually disconnect us from loving God and from loving others. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how that happens. So when you think of the heart, we have a typical way. All of you probably think of, I think, heart. How do you, how would you define heart? All right. Biblically, heart encompasses much more than what we think of when we think of heart. So here is what the heart is in the meaning of scripture, biblically. All right. This is actually from a word, the dictionary about Greek words. And what does the word heart mean from the Greek and from Jesus's and even the Old Testament's perspective? The heart is, this is some come, the heart is the seed of our desires, feelings, affections, passions, and impulses. I think a lot of us think of our heart that way. That's where your feelings reside, your emotions, all those things you just go, ugh. Sometimes you feel happy, sometimes you feel sad, sometimes you feel depressed, sometimes you feel joyful, sometimes you're just struggling, all right? <clears throat> but the heart is also the intellect. It's the meaning, meaning of the mind and the understanding. So our heart in scripture actually is also what is part that helps us to understand. Understand one another. Understand God. Relationally doing that. And then finally, our heart also includes, believe it or not, our will. It involves the ability to do something in our lives. 
So when you look at the heart in Scripture, really, I think the best way to think of the heart, it is what makes each of us a person. It is what makes us so we can actually relate to God and relate to other people. We can't relate. I see True's dog out there, okay? We love our dogs. We love our animals. But dogs are not persons, all right? They don't have a heart in the same way that we do. It is this heart that is really what interconnects us. It is this heart that allows us to love others and to love God. And so when that heart is something's going wrong with our heart, something's going wrong because of our emotions or desires, or something's going wrong in there, it can start break break our ability to love God and love others. And that's really what John's saying. He's saying that when you have a heart, if you want to go back to um, 1 John there, when you have a heart that is condemning you, that is going to affect our relationships with other people. Now, here's something. Um, once you now go to the slide about hearts condemning us, here's just some ways. I'm giving you some just examples about how when John says our hearts condemn us, what does that mean? Here's a couple examples. Our hearts condemn us when we allow our feelings and emotions to govern our behavior towards others. That never happens to any of us here at Little Church, okay? Because we're a special little church, okay? But... We can all relate to that as persons, right? Okay, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I would assume all of you would raise your hand. All right, so our hearts condemn us when we allow our feelings and emotions about what's going on to actually control and govern how we treat other people. Our hearts condemn us when we define our identity by the world's standards. Our hearts condemn us when we deceive ourselves into believing God condemns us. Our hearts condemn us when we let past or present shame and guilt control us. These are tough subjects, tough things that go on. Our heart condemn us when we put our ultimate trust in something and someone other than God. That is why it is so important, so important for us to have a clean heart. A heart that does not condemn us. A heart that does not say judge us. A heart where we feel like we don't belong, where we feel like we don't... No one loves us when we feel like God doesn't love us, when we feel like we're not worth it. All those things are that heart that condemns us that John is talking about here. Now, there's two ways John now tells us about how we deal with a heart that condemns us. So we do not be controlled by our emotions. So we see God as he sees us. And one way may surprise you, right? Because the first way John talks about it, it's not so obvious, but... He there, that statement, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth, is referring to the statement above about how we are to love God and love others. But notice that as he's making this transition, one of the things he's talking about is how our hearts condemn us. How one way does our hearts condemn us is by not loving our brothers and sisters in the way that we should, which is back up in verse 17. So when you are experiencing that your heart is condemning you and you're not good enough and you, it, just, it is stopping you from saying, I just don't feel like going out and loving others. I want you to notice this connection here. God is connected to us. We are connected to others. All right. One of the best ways to let God come in and heal a heart that condemns us is to go and love others 
is to go and love others. I will tell you personally, I've experienced this over and over again. Someone talked to me about this years and years ago. When I most feel like I do not want to talk to someone, when I'm upset at my wife, when I like, okay, Jeff, I don't really want to tell you what's going on. (laughs) Whatever it is, or I feel like someone has something against me. What someone told me a long time ago is when you feel that way, that's your heart condemning you, you know what you do? You do something for that other person. You do something to show that you love that other person. Okay. Now, I'm not talking about a be very clear. I'm not talking about abuse situations or those types of things. I'm talking about our normal interpersonal relations. Then when we feel someone has something against us, go to them and love them. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. Go and see them personally, not just texting them. Connect with them personally. And I have seen over and over again that when we do that, God, who loves those, will come in and heal our heart about that person. And maybe even heal our heart about other things that are going on. So that's one way John tells us that we can go and heal this heart. But here's the other way and the final way that he tells us that. Our hearts need to be reassured. Our hearts need to be told over and over again, particularly when it's condemning us. Our hearts need to be told, you are loved. God loves you. God is greater than your heart. That's the reassurance. When we, we will reassure our hearts when they condemn us, And how will we do that? We will focus not on what our hearts are telling us who we are, but we will focus on who God says that we are. Let me read this quote from Gary Burge. Um, He's a New Testament scholar who wrote on this passage, and I think he really captures what we're talking about here. He says, This passage, which is exactly the one we're talking about, gives us a clear strategy about what to think when moments of profound insecurity overtake us. Our assurance is anchored in God and God alone, never in our ability to generate feelings of confidence. Don't we try to do that? I'm trying to make myself feel better. I'm trying to make myself feel better, okay? Or we do things we shouldn't be doing to make ourselves try to feel better. Never in our ability to generate feelings of confidence. John is urging that God is the final arbiter of our personal spiritual well-being. We do not look into our hearts to see if we feel secure and then use this as evidence of our security in the truth. <laughs> I want to say that again because listen to how we, we can do this so easily. We do not feel, we do not look into our hearts and see if we feel secure and then use this as evidence of the security and of what the truth is about our security. If our conscience condemns, and this is what John is, First John is saying here, if our conscience condemns us, God overrides the verdict. This is possible for two reasons. God is mightier than our hearts, and he knows far more about us than we can ever imagine. This is why... We turn our focus. So many passages in Scripture says, look to what God says about you, not about what the world says. Look at what God says about you, not what you're feeling in your heart right now. 
We need that reassurance. It's like, you know, when someone comes up to you and you're feeling really horrible about something and someone comes up and really reassures you personally, how much that makes you feel like, oh, okay, I'm really okay, all right? God does that too. And that's really, I want to say in a lot of ways, that's one of the primary reasons. I said in, in, our, in my sermon at the end of the year, I said one of the reasons we have this Bible, one of the reasons we have this is to encourage us. But the other reason we're given this is also to reassure us, to reassure us about how God really views us. All right. And I want to just take you to just one, well, I'll just, I'll just take you to one passage right now, time-wise, just to show you. This is one you all know, but I'm going to just repeat it again. It's John, it's Romans 8, 1. Therefore, 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 going back to everything that Paul's been saying in um, Romans, therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do we really believe that our God does not condemn us anymore? Like with my wife, if, if, if I told her, and I said this before one time, you know, if I told her, well, I love you, and I said, I only need to tell you that once a year, she would look at me and go, you're crazy. You need to hear that all the time. This is why we stay in the Word. We need to hear it all the time. That's, I want to say one of the reasons we're doing Bible recap, reading through the Bible, so we can keep hearing over and over again, this is how much God loves you. This is how much He loves you, and we need that to keep this strong. And this could almost be another sermon, okay, which we don't have time for right now, obviously. Um, but I'm going to just read the end of 1 John here, because I want you to listen to this last part, go back up to the um, one on First John. What happens when we have our hearts reassured and they no longer condemn us? What is the blessing? What is the result? We end up restoring ourselves back to this, strong in our faith. And so listen how John closes this section. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And we receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what is pleasing to him. We then have this life of prayer with God that we know his will. We know what pleases him so much that when we ask, yes, he gives it to us. According to his will, as I will say later in First John. Now this is his command. And he, John goes and repeats this. This is his command that we believe each of us individually believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are to then love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps these commands remain in him. The presence of God remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. It is God's spirit that lives in us, that lives in all those that challenge you to want to love them. That spirit that is from God that keeps this triangle strong and healthy. So I want to end with that reassurance. Okay, and I want to have Marcia come up. This is a woman, and if you've been up here praying with her, if you know her personally, this is a woman whose gift is reassurance. 
she so has, for years here at this church, she is one, when I feel down, when I feel my heart condemned, she is one who comes and reassures me because the word of God so lives in this woman's heart. It comes right out of her mouth. All right? And I want you to listen to her and her own words speak some of these scriptures to you today about the assurance and confidence we have in Christ, and then we will close. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. First John four seventeen through eighteen. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Ephesians 3, 8 through 12. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Amen. 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 Can we all say a big Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Marcia. Why don't we all stand? As we close, as you know, that you can come down here. Marcia, among others of us, are here if you want to pray. Have any questions? If you want to know more about this Jesus and you don't know him, come and ask us. All right. And I want to close with this benediction, which really picks right up on where she left off in Ephesians, as for all of us. And this is what it says. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him 
to Christ, who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen.